welcome to the Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from K-Hand Games. And I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we're here to talk about homebrews. So what are we going to talk about today, Bo? The interesting question of, do game creation tools uh, prevent or kind of promote creativity in, in terms of game creation? Now, when you say game making tools, what are you, I guess, referring to? Well, you know, it kind of spans a whole gamut. Anybody that's not coding in straight, you know, binary stuff is using, uh, we'll say layers of abstraction, things that are not, you know, directly related to the ones and zeros that make up programming. And so we could use things like a graphics editor. Um, we could use things like a music tracker to help make our music. We could use anything up to, we'll say, like a sort of a game creation device, a level editor or that type of thing, or even things like C that come with, you know, a whole library of code sort of prepackaged that you can, you know, they, they're a tool in making a game faster. Okay, so anything that sort of expedites or allows you to visually see some sort of representation of what you're working on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's what I'm thinking of. These are these are different from kind of intra-game editors, uh, things like well, you know, RPG Maker. That's sort of a drag and drop deal. But I'm thinking more like Load Runner had sort of a game creation tool, uh, The Incident, uh, which I believe you are familiar with. Uh, I've played that game once or twice. Well, a couple times. Uh, that had like a level editor. I, I built one for my own game. Uh, there's a whole bunch throughout the sort of the history of NES development. And do those things help you be creative or do they sort of get in the way of being kind of original due to the hmm. structures that they, they present you with? Well, it's interesting to think about what immediately comes to mind for me. And, and my immediate response is, of course, it makes it easier to be creative with something that allows you to visually see what you're doing. But I I can recall a number of times where I would, you know, be working on graphics in the tile editor and I would start to feel constricted because working on individual eight by eight pixel tiles sometimes prevents me from easily sort of seeing the bigger picture. Like when you're working on a larger sprite that's comprised of like many tiles, it's harder for me sometimes to sort of piece it together and, and know what it's supposed to look like in a larger size. Whereas like if you're working in paint or whatever, you have the entire canvas to sort of click pixel by pixel and to see it grow. But I, I feel a little constricted when I use tile editor sometimes. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a big question to ask is what does a tool allow you to do and how would the process differ if you weren't using said tool? Mm. So graphics are kind of difficult because, you know, you need to be able to probably see that uh, right. <laughs> to a large degree. <laughs> but even within that, like at least in terms of graphics, there's probably not really an alternative uh, other than, you know, unless you're super strange and can do the ones and zeros thing. But most of us can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll say the base is sort of like a standard tile editor that allows you to sort of see what you're drawing and import it quickly in. But at the same time, most tile editors don't allow you to natively uh, layer sprites. So you're stuck with three color sprites all the time. Yeah, you sort of have to you have to know ahead of time kind of how things are going to be structured and how you're going to be bringing things in as far as sprites and meta tiles and and what's going to be sprite and what's going to be background like as the programmer there's no easy way to like do that 
after you've drawn stuff, you sort of have to just know what you're doing while you're doing it. Yeah, so that that's that's a big one because the tool sort of shapes your creative process unless you're able to work around that. Like I do my drawing and paint. I know all the restraints and constrictions. So when I go to layer things, I can do that and know that when I switch it back into a tile editor, I'm going to have to make a bunch of changes to get things to work and line up and all that. Yeah. Which could often be missed. Let's pick a different one. Though. How about music? Music. Music's really interesting because... I would have I wouldn't have thought in a million years that anyone would be typing music in in code these days note by note like using a tracker to me as a musician just makes things so much easier because you have a visual representation of what each note is what that note is like going against in the other channels like what note is being played in every channel in an individual frame like it just to me it makes it so much easier but I'm seeing, you know, I know Rob from Slydog Studios does his stuff in the code, and it just seems like some people prefer that, and it seems to work for them. Well, his tool is a, a bass guitar. He sits there, he plays it, and then he transcribes it directly into code. There's no tracker in between, mm-hmm. which I, I find fascinating. I mean, that's how they used to do it back in, in the 80s. A lot of people, not everybody, of course, but quite a few, they would just compose directly in hex like that's nuts uh, if you grew up with it is man and stuff like that yeah you're making tables that list the notes and the note lengths and it just seems like it would get so convoluted so fast like even one phrase of a song you'd have so many tables to keep track <laughs> of i don't know how they do it I don't either because I can't write music, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I ignorance do is bliss. I sometimes I do know that like even between the different trackers, you get different things that you can do. The tool itself shapes what you're able to compose. And then you also have the added step of the fact that most music engines won't support a lot of what the tracker can do. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, a lot of these music trackers have effects and volume channels and everything sort of built in for you to use at your leisure. But some of the major sound engines like Famitone, I don't know too much about Drag NSF because I haven't used it, but I know Famitone and Famitone 2 for sure. Like there are limitations on you can't use a note above this octave or below this octave and you can't use these effects or you have to program all your volume into the instruments themselves it's it's really interesting well yeah when we went to go do zero to x and i used some of uh Membler's old music from the you know, late 90s early 2000s he did all that stuff in nerd tracker 2 and so i actually had to use the nerd tracker 2 music engine in my in my program which was done by bananmos and, and another fellow but if we wanted to add to that at all, you know, Joe hasn't used Nerd Tracker 2 in probably a decade. And so he would it even run in Windows. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know, to be honest. With you. But he would have had to have like fig- refigured out the whole process of composing in this tool in order to be able to add new music. But we just we just left it as it was. Thank goodness. Well, I mean, it's, it's a good thing. So much of his older music is just so good that you could just pull <laughs> pull from his old stuff and not worry about adding anything new. Well, I had, did have like 183 tracks to choose from, so I, I, <laughs> oh, I was that's picky, it, huh? but not that big. <laughs> so what's another category of tool we got? Well, I mean, you mentioned intergame editors. Well, let's do level editors as a whole. How about that? Okay. Um, personally, I think that it would make it a lot easier to 
sort of construct levels. I know that when you did Spookatron, you put in like an in-game sort of builder for the for the testers to create levels. And I think that being able to get the sort of restrictions out of the way, you know, when you build all those into the game editor itself, you know, you are completely free to be creative and only look at how can I make this fun? You don't have to worry about, oh, there can only be this many of this sprite on this line. And I don't know, it, it can get a, it, it can turn into a mess real quick. Well, it's sort of funny you bring up that specific example because, you know, Spookatron has 32 enemies. There's, you know, 16 different projectiles. There's the hero. There's civilians. You can actually stack them all on the same line if, if you wanted. Mm-hmm. I resisted the urge to kind of build in fail safes like that, that only let you put so many things. But when people did make levels that, you know, really didn't observe the rules, then I, I couldn't use them because they were, you know, you couldn't see half the enemies or that type of thing. So yeah, the question of kind of when and where a tool might be handy with with Spookatron, it was real easy because, you know, it's a game that you need immediate feedback. It's not a long game, like each level takes 20 seconds tops. And to be able to sit there and play it and make immediate changes and reconfigure things and organize whatever, like that was very handy for that type of game. Yeah, plus, I mean, you have all the enemy behavior already built in. So like, you don't have to stop and try to imagine like, how I mean, you do to, to a certain extent, like how how is this level going to play? You can build it and immediately have that instantaneous feedback on, oh, okay, maybe I need to move this enemy a little bit further away because he's moving a little too quick. See, there's other genres, though, that I, I don't think that I would... Well, I know I don't use a level editor. When I do like RPG stuff or action adventures, I just do all that straight in the code. Huh. Well, I would think that um, being able to sort of construct the overworld map, like I think I, I think a tool would be beneficial for that. You don't use that at all? I, what I, I use RPG Maker to kind of like roughly lay things out, but when I actually go to put everything into, you know, the code, it's all done by hand. Everything is, you know, sort of laid out in nice little, uh, I don't use a, RLE compression so like all my data is like a block it, you know you can right. easily see and change any little thing and so it makes it really easy to you know change anything on the fly yep I know that um, you know in the past when I've used uh, any a screen tool for some of my you know full screen graphics say I want to tweak one of the attributes for for one of the little areas I would have to reload up, you know, the the screen in the NES screen tool. I would have to reload the CHR. Like you have to sort of reconstruct it, then change the attribute, then re-export it. Whereas if you just manually entered, you know, the binary numbers into the code, you would just have to change two digits and you'd be done. Yeah, and that's that's why I just do my level data like that. The NES, that's you always use NES screen tool, and I know a lot of people do, but I've never found a use for it because it works. It's so rigid with the restrictions. Like you can only have two hundred fifty six tiles, and most of you know, like my title screens and stuff have way more than that. So yeah, it. Uh, I've never found it to be that useful. I, to me, that's a constraint on creativity, not something that allows me to be more creative. Well, in the past, um, for different things, I've had to import like bitmaps into 
um, the program to use for different things. And I know that before NES Screen Tool came out, um, Al, Al Bailey back in 2009 uh, or 2010, he had this like Java program that you could import pictures into and it would sort of convert it into NES format and try to guess the palette and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, it worked decently, um, but I found that NES's screen, NES Screen Tool's bitmap importer works really really well so um i don't know that you would ever have a use for it but if anyone ever needed to do that uh, it seems to work very well (laughs) yeah it's always that question of you know is it going to be useful or helpful in this situation or is it going to kind of get in the way and become a roadblock and i think all like all the tools that are sort of available um in the nes development community i i think you sort of have to figure out how is this going to like how does this work for me and after you sort of have you develop your um your routine and your your workflow process you start to go to these different tools for uh recurring specific things each new project well a lot of homebrewers too have built their own tools to make their games i know like julius who did super bat puncher and some other stuff he has, you know, spent months, and same with Derek from Gradual Games, spent months uh, building these tools in order to build their worlds and levels and stuff because they don't want to, you know, that's easier for them and they don't want to enter in the data by hand and, and all that. I think uh, in the first Nest Dev competition episode, we heard Toggle Switch talk about how, you know, there was no way he was going to sit there and enter 64 screens worth of data. And it's like, well, you know, that only takes a couple <laughs> hours if you do it. Uh Yeah. I almost want to say it's real programmers no better than to just do it by hand, but I'm I'm not certain on that just yet. I'm I'm with you in that guess because I that's sort of where my road ends, and you know I I can't get into the you know I can't go any further because I don't know how to do that stuff. <laughs> but it seems like the developers that can build specific tools for things. I don't know. They they go straight to that. I know that when I was working on Risk, when I originally load the map before people choose their territories, I was trying to think of a way to, you know, signify that the map has not been chosen by anyone yet. And I was trying to think of a way to manually go in and select any pixel that wasn't the background color, make it just a random color. So it just it initially comes up as random gibberish. You know, it still looks like a map but it's just random colors on every pixel. And I started clicking by hand, pixel, 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 pixel. And I was like, this is going to take forever. So I jumped into the Nintendo Age developer Discord channel and I was like, hey, like, can anyone, like, I was half joking. Like, can anyone make me a tool to do this? And Kasumi was like, all right, uh, give me 15 minutes. And literally, like, in 15 minutes, I had sent him my graphics files. He had sent them back to me and they were done. Like, People that can do that kind of stuff that quickly blow my mind. But in that specific instance, a tool saved many hours of headache for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I believe it. And plus, it, it looks amazing. I've, I've seen some pictures. I think they're on Twitter somewhere. Yeah. That's one of the questions, too, when you're building your own tools or considering, you know, is it going to save time outside of the creative aspect? Like, is it actually helpful? Uh, is it going to take longer to build the tool than it is to actually use the tool? Right. And are you going to build it for anyone else to use? Are you going to make it user friendly? Are you going to make it to where you can use it on multiple projects? Like there's, there's so much that has to go, you know, into sort of play when you're, when you're thinking of these things or or not we, but the people that can do this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you've built a tool for, you know, for the incident that had a full level editor where you could build your own levels. How did that, how did that work for you? Well, I never, I, I built a couple levels with it, but I really built it for other people to use. And like, you know, I, I imagined when the game came out that people would buy it and think, oh, cool, I can make my own levels here and I can export them to a code and other people can like import them and play my levels. Uh, in reality, I don't think anyone used it, but um, it seemed to me that it would have been useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ran into that with with Spookatron. Like I had five level builders or seven level builders. They, you know, they did a bunch of work. Uh, a couple of the Kickstarter backers did like two a piece or four a piece, and then uh, Tanya did like five and Matt did like five and I did like maybe 10 if I'm lucky. And then like James did like 50 or 60. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he really took to it and found ways to make these like just crazy creative levels all the time. But you know, most people were like, hey, this is, you know, I can use it, but I'm out of ideas after like three. Yeah. And I think that is one of the sort of harms of putting things visually in front of your face because you start doing things in patterns and then you start seeing the same things in every new level you're making and it's hard to sort of break away from your initial sort of uh inclinations when you're building these things yeah oh that's for sure i mean i just kept doing like variations on the same theme so there's i think three or four levels that are basically the same but i just kept doing tiny little changes to make them ridiculously hard so you'd like <laughs> run right into a block when you thought you you know there wouldn't be a block there that time but you can do you can get away with some of that, but at the end it's like, yeah, this is kind of just the same level. I gotta take, you know, a yeah. month off and build some more later. Good thing you had James, huh? That guy's pretty awesome. Yeah, and like that was another thing. So I like as much as you could build things in the level editor, initially, like I had them like taking pictures of their screens, like that were full of, you know, <laughs> X and Y coordinates, and they would send them to me and I would type them up. But by the end I found an intergame way of exporting them through the save RAM. And then I would pop that up and like download it and change it and put it into the code. And it was way better, but that's like a whole different level of in-game tool that is sort of out of game. And eh, a few other people have done it, but not many. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's cool to sit and analyze this because like I said, like my first inclination is of course tools would make things easier to be more creative. But when you start like looking at it, there are plenty of instances where it wouldn't, well, especially like when you want to go beyond the limits. So you generally build a tool with certain limits in mind, but those aren't necessarily the limits of the system. You can only have like 128 meta tiles, usually in like a table of meta tiles, and then you have to like switch to a different set. But if you, there's ways to mix multiple tables on the screen at once. It just depends how you're going to do it. And to build a level editor that lets somebody have almost endless tiles is much harder than just building one that's like, well, you get your 60 tiles and that's all. Mm -hmm. Don't complain. Yeah, not to mention that a lot of the a lot of the constraints that, you know, we've grown to learn about the NES, like as we develop new hardware, new mappers, new boards, new systems like the AVS, some of these you know, limitations aren't limitations anymore. I mean, you still have to sort of consider that people are going to play, be playing your game on the on the NES. But if you wanted to build a game strictly for the AVS and you wanted to have 15 sprites on a scan line, you could do that. Well, that's one of the things too. Tools get you away from an intimate knowledge of the constraints. They, you know, they make it, they either simplify them or, you know, if you, you know, if you're using like a, tile editor 
you know, it simplifies things like when you could be doing a lot more, but then if you switch over to paint, you end up doing a lot more that can't then be done. And so yeah, by, you know, working closely with the platform, you're able to really, you know, lean into the system and push it further than you would otherwise. Yep. It's certainly, uh, you have to know the system for sure when you're <laughs> developing this stuff. I did notice in some of the conversations we've had lately and that we're about to have later in the episode is that, you know, level editor does come in handy when you're working with an artist or a musician who also wants to help with level design, like a uh, Grinusica 2 between Lucas and, and MT. Oh, and like Project Blue between Toggle Switch and Franken Graphics. Like, the artist on those projects ends up doing most of the level design. And so without the ability to just kind of quickly drag and drop, like they wouldn't be able to create the levels and the game would suffer because of that. So it kind of goes kind of goes all ways depending on, you know, your situation. Yeah, and that could be like an easier way to bring someone else in. And I don't know if this is sort of what you're implying, like someone who maybe doesn't know the limitations as much as you do. Like if you send someone NES screen tool who doesn't know that you can only use a single, you know, attribute for a 16 by 16 area. Like if you send them, the, if you send the artist that program, they then don't have to think about that. They are forced to abide by the rules. So it does make it easier when you're bringing in uh, multiple people. Yeah. Unless you want to go beyond that, then it's, you know, right. Becomes difficult. There's a give and take. <laughs> yeah, more than one artist, I've been like, you can do this. And they're like, no, like, the, these are the restrictions. I'm like, no, there are no restrictions. Just like, draw. Be, be great. I'll make it work. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah. So what game are we talking about this week? Well, this is going to be a unique episode in the fact that the game we're talking about, uh, Micromages, I think we might be some of the only people listening that have played it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have not kind of covered a game that has... We've mostly covered things from the past or things that are currently available to download, but we haven't really covered something that is inaccessible. And we'll see how this goes, I guess. Yeah, so Micromages right now um, should be on Kickstarter. So if you're listening and you uh, don't know sort of what we're talking about, pause the episode, go into the episode description. There's a link there with uh, a direct link to the Kickstarter page so you can read all about it, then come back and listen to us talk about it. So this is the game that I've kind of hinted about over the last several months about it being kind of my favorite homebrew so far. Like, Because I know there's, there's going to be more things that come out and who knows what the next newest big thing will be. But for the last about year, Micromages has been it for me. Uh, back then, it was known as Wiz, uh, which was when I was sort of, I was one of the testers on the project and was sort of invited on at kind of a late stage in it. And this game is phenomenal. So, kind of one of the, and I've showed it to Kevin at various conventions. He's played it on his own, whatnot, and kind of wanted to take the time to kind of draw some attention to it, even though nobody else can play it. And you'll be able to play it soon enough, I'm sure. It is awesome so who actually made this game i don't even think we've said that yet micromages has been kind of secretly in development for the last couple of years by uh, julius who is more famously known for super bat puncher well the yes. super bat puncher demo and the idea <laughs> that super bat puncher could have become and uh nicholas uh, Bateau, 
he's the graphics and level design kind of behind the project with Julius doing the programming and music. Yeah, and it's not fair that Julius is such a talented programmer. He also did the dang music, man. Yeah. Oh, man. And I mean, he's done graphics in the past, like with uh, Superbat Puncher and some other stuff. But uh, him and Nicholas together are just phenomenal. It's like the USA Dream Team back in the Olympics, you know, that basketball team that just couldn't be beaten. <laughs> so let's talk about, um, to, to people that don't know about this game or maybe haven't paused to go check it out yet, let's, let's describe sort of a, a detailed gameplay description, for lack of a better term. Yeah, we're going to give you a little more than probably we normally do just so to kind of paint you a picture of what the game is about. And yeah, so that way we can... It's weird to describe a game in words like this without actually being able to experience it. But yeah, we'll see. We probably won't do this again <laughs> for a while. So Micromages is a vertical scrolling, a forced vertical scrolling platformer. But that um, scrolling speed kind of varies based on your screen position. Mm-hmm. I've heard it's kind of like um, Towerfall, I want to say. Towerfall? Is that it? Some sort of tower game? I don't know. All these kids in their new games. <laughs> I think they've also compared it to Super Meat Boy in, uh, in the sense that the levels are sort of zoomed out a little bit. Your character is small. In this game, he actually used uh, an 8 by 8 pixel sprite uh, as far as the size goes. Um, and the levels are massive. Um, you're sort of wall jumping um, to get from platform to platform and dodging enemies. And it's unique in the sense that I think they took the spirit of like Bubble Bobble. Like Bubble Bobble, people seem to have like a very fond nostalgic recollection of like back in the day playing with friends like when i had the privilege of playing this game at magfest with you and some of the retrotainment guys it really was a freaking blast and i guess we haven't even mentioned yet it is four players yeah so because they used small eight by eight sprites they made it so you could use four players throughout the game and it's both competitive and co-op uh, as you're scrolling or as you're Jumping up this tower, or these towers, because there's several. Uh, well, no, it's one tower. As you're jumping <laughs> up this tower and you're, you know, trying to get by the, all the obstacles and, you know, keep pace with the, the uh, scrolling and whatnot, you know, you're dodging enemies, you're shooting blocks, you're collecting treasures. But when you're playing multiplayer, you're also dodging your friends and you're either helping them or you can even hinder them as, you know, you push them into pits or you uh, shove them into enemies, things like that. So it's, it's got it's got a fun, like competitive, cooperative thing when you, your shots don't actually go through them, which is sort of nice. And then once you die, you actually come back as a ghost and you can sort of stun enemies and help your friends. And until the last player dies, then it's not a nobody else loses a life. Yeah, and I don't really think that you emphasize that enough. Like, I don't know of many games that when you die, you're not just waiting for, like, the level to start over again. Like, you actually can continue to play as a ghost and influence the gameplay, um, and you can even come across an item that will turn you back to life, right? Yeah, so if you collect the fairies or whatnot, you come back to life. And the reason that I don't emphasize the multiplayer is because I mostly played it single player. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's so cool that 
the game is so good that it stands on its own. You can play it single player and enjoy it as much as you would um, any other game. But yeah, like sitting down to play it with friends, I really think that's where the game shines. I don't know, man. I had a blast playing it single player. It was probably my most played game of last year. Now, how many how many levels does this game have? Oh, the game has... So, when you're playing through the game, and I've played through it many a time, which for once, like the first time that I've ever beta tested and actually wanted to go back and play the game <laughs> still. This is... I haven't played Larry in four years. I haven't played Armed for Battle in almost five. Like, Aulia, I haven't played in three. Like, I just... You get burnt out when you're beta testing, but... yeah. Micromages is so fun and you kind of get, I'm not very good at platformers normally. And so I was sort of hesitant when I first fired up the game and I didn't really know what I was expecting. I just knew that Julius had made it and Julius and Nicholas, but you know, I knew Julius was in some way involved. I was like, Oh, it's super bat puncher guy. He's back. <laughs> and I'll play whatever. I'll, I'll beta test anything. This could be, you know, well, not hentai, but almost anything. Uh, <laughs> I'd play hentai made from him. And so I'm, I, you know, I hit start and the screen loads and I am sitting there. I'm like, hmm, this is kind of strange. And I jump and I shoot like that's, that's different. And then all of a sudden it starts scrolling. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. I, I do not like scrolling. <laughs> no, not for scrolling. No, no, but I'd already signed on. So I kind of had to like force myself to play it. And I eventually, over the course of, you know, two hours or so, two and a half, maybe it was longer, I made it all the way through, like, the first game, because there's, like, an easy mode and a hard mode. And so there's four worlds, and each world has three levels and a boss at the end of that. And, you know, you kind of get into a rhythm. You you know, you're going through the levels, you know, bosses come in, whatnot. And when you, when you finish easy mode, then you get to play hard mode. And hard mode's got kind of all the same levels, except they're kind of remixed. They're made harder, that's for sure. And <laughs> they're they're the same, but they're different enough that it, the challenge is, is new. So yeah, there are eight worlds, you know, four bosses, but you play them each two times. So you're talking, you know, eight to ten bosses, somewhere in there. I can't, I don't want to give too much away, but... <laughs> You know, there's there's a lot of game there, despite the fact that, you know, once you start to sort of master it, and, you know, that happens when you're testing a game and whatnot, that you can blow through the whole game in, you know, a pretty decent amount, or a pretty short amount of time, and, you know, you're playing in a different way than you are the first time or two that you play through it. Yeah, and we've mentioned, you know, that you do shoot enemies to sort of get by them and progress, but there are power-ups and and different like weapons that you use throughout the game right yeah you get the fairy which kind of gives you like uh, an extra life and i think it's called like a seagull feather or something but it looks like a little fairy that hovers by you yeah and then you also get the feather which oh that's probably the seagull feather now that i think of it um <laughs> sorry i just finally found out like the real names to all these things i was just playing it calling it you know in my head whatever i felt like well, that's half the fun of old Nintendo games. You just call things ridiculous names and, you know, the next thing you know, all your friends are calling it the same thing. Oh, it rekindled some magic. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, you get the feather and you can sort of float. And, you know, when you get hit, you lose the feather. You get hit again, you lose the fairy. And then you're, you get hit again and you die. 
And so you're constantly trying to like regain your power ups when you lose them. And the feather just makes navigation so much easier because you can kind of hover and, you know, slide laterally much easier than using the ropes or whatnot. Yeah. And you, you said that the game like you, you know, when you get good enough at it, you can sort of blow through it and it's a pretty quick game, but the bosses are very hard. And I mean, there are patterns that you can sort of, you know, learn over time, just like any boss in any Nintendo game. But the game has some difficulty to it, and they have sort of gone out of their way to provide uh, passwords, right? So you can you can jump back in if you get a game over and you want to continue from where you left off. Yeah, you do lose your score, though, which kind of sucks. Like, by now, like, I'm playing every time with trying to beat my high score, and I, I wish those scores saved, uh, but because they use just a straight Enron board, they don't. Oh, you mean like save when you turn the cartridge off? Yeah. Oh, man. I love that. Okay. I'm not like a big like uh, score type gamer. And so, but this game, it's, you can play it in a short enough time that it's like, you just want to do the best you can. And <laughs> yeah, and you, because you can play it relatively quickly when you get really good and with the, the scrolling will keep pace with you and kind of move faster so you can run through the levels a bit quicker and it gets you, the challenge changes as you get better. Yeah, and they're, it's not just like a, a straightforward sort of platformer. Like they've done a pretty good job of hiding secrets and, you know, things in crates. Like there's a lot to sort of gain by exploring, which is sometimes hard to do with, with the level, the way that it's auto scrolling. Sometimes you have to make the decision if you want to go after, you know, see what's over on this side of, of the world and you have to sort of get back without the screen sort of getting out from under you. Um, but there's there's secrets hidden throughout the game. That's one of my favorite things about the game is you you end up developing almost memorizing the levels and developing strategies for them to get through them in a way that you can either get, you know, all the treasures or get through them as fast as possible or whatnot. It's it's got a lot of depth, despite the fact that it feels at times kind of short. And I know on the Kickstarter, they're sort of pushing, you know, the fact that it's an Enron game and they've, you know, crammed it all into, what is it, like 48 kilobytes or something? I think 40. Yeah, whatever. Some ridiculously low number. But like me not knowing that when I played the game, you know, I've been playing it now for, you know, I've played it probably six months now. I had no idea. I assumed it that it was a... A bigger game like you know the games that you and I are making that are 256 512 kilobytes like the fact that this is an Enrom game at 40 kilobytes that's almost ridiculous yeah it's both impressive and it's kind of disappointing uh, because yeah, I know it's maddening for you because you you just want more right I do I mean like I would love to see a full like you know, as many worlds as you can give me. Uh, I want to send <laughs> towers all day long. Yeah. So it's it's rough to you know just have those eight just have those eight worlds. I, <laughs> I still can't beat the eight worlds in Mario, but Micromages I can beat the eight worlds and I love it. Yeah, but as a developer, I mean, and you and I both know that you can you can tweak and change things until the cows come home, but eventually you have to just say, you know what, like the game's done and this is it, like maybe they wanted the game to be an Enrom game and this is sort of the extent that they had in mind when they went out, you know, set out to make it. But see, you don't know what I've seen. Oh, that's true. You are in the secret thread. Because <laughs> I've seen different versions and I've seen them cut things that I loved. 
and mm. whole like sections of levels are now different. And it's like, oh, but if we could just take that section that you cut and the other six sections you cut and make them a new level, that's a whole new world. Let's do it. <laughs> like the Aladdin song? Oh, hey, that was our, uh, that, not our, that was uh, my uh, wedding song. Anyways. Was it really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was weird though because the DJ put the music so low that nobody heard it. So it looked like my wife and I were dancing to nothing. <laughs> it's like ghost. It was like ghost, pretty much. With but the music was the ghost, and she was whooping. right. We're not doing well with our comparisons today. <laughs> no, no, that's that's the problem you get when you're on one episode. You're really off the next. Yeah, that's okay though. Gameplay aside, which to me is amazing. Like I just want more. It's fun. It's solid. It's a blast alone or with a bunch of people. Uh, let's talk about graphics some. Let's do it. Now, we did mention that the graphics are, you know, the characters that we play are small 8x8 pixel size sprites. They are. They are highly animated, though, for being so small. And, again, that's sort of one of the advantages we have of homebrew versus, you know, back-in-the-day licensed, which we talked about last episode, is that with HD TVs, you don't really notice the fact that things are 8x8 versus what you're used to seeing 16 by 16 They're crisp, they're clear, they're easily discernible, all that yeah, good stuff. They're able to sort of be distinguishable and you, you, know, you know what you're looking at when you look at these characters. And it's amazing that they, they really sort of develop their own personality, which is really hard to do, I think, with 8x8 uh, sprites. Yeah, I mean, they were avoided like the plague in the licensed era because you couldn't see them on a CRT. I mean, hook that NES up to a Commodore display and see if you can even make out what's going on. No, everything's blurring into each other and it just looks like a garbled mess. Which they did the graphics when they drew them in such a way that the blur helped show you what they wanted you to see. But nowadays, when we're looking at a computer screen and drawing graphics, it's easier if we know that that's actually what the player is going to see is those, you know, every single pixel. Yeah. So the player sprites, I think, look fantastic. Um, and I think they really did a great job with the backgrounds, too. The backgrounds oh, are really man. sort of dark. They're moody. It almost sort of reminds you of Castlevania with like how sort of atmospheric the levels feel. It's the fade to black backgrounds, man. They are just awesome. Nicholas does some of the best work that i've seen on the nes yeah he really nailed it and as someone who's tried to do graphics for nintendo like it's it's very impressive what he pulled off yeah and he we should mention too that he's done some previous things uh, he's got a blog where he's talked he's done some tutorials and he's you know mocked up some projects and whatnot and he and julius have worked together on other projects in the past as well but this is sort of the first one that's actually being released and so as a as a first released effort, you couldn't ask for better than this. This is just amazing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And and the bosses. I know we can't talk about the what, like the content of the bosses too much, yeah. but yeah, they are so cool. Especially, I think it's boss um, two is just neat. Like I'm trying to remember which one. Well, is there I, a hint that you can give me? He's sitting still. Ah, uh, okay. Yep, I remember I now. Think, I think it's in the it's in the Kickstarter video, but it oh no, it is it is in the Kickstarter video, and you, you can kind of see like 
It's just that level of detail is so... You don't see that, ever, hardly. No, and it's funny because, you know, we just got done talking about, you know, previous games that we would probably consider to be on the licensed level. But I think even some of the games that we've, you know, described as such, the the bosses that were found in them... I think maybe if if you can find any fault in those games, like maybe the bosses weren't designed quite as well or as polished um, as you know some of the games of old. But this game, I really think all around, including the bosses, I think they're very impressive. Well, yeah, like Mega Man, where you know the entire background fades to black for the giant bosses, whereas Nicholas is leaving. The whole background there and still finding ways to, you know, animate things and make it look like those background tiles are actively moving. Yeah, and he does this cool little trick that, and I don't think enough games do this now, and I even, you know, even for myself, I need to start getting the habit of trying to do things like that. When the boss fight is initiating, you sort of leave the tower that you've been climbing to get to the top, um, and there's this cool little animation to sort of transition from the level to the boss. And I think that it makes it feel more significant, you know, when when they take the time to do that. And it's little sort of tricks like that, that just polish, it, the game just looks so much more polished than uh, maybe some of the other games that have come out. You know, we're used to sort of seeing like, oh, you know, Mega Man did this or Little Samson did this. But when you see another homebrewer doing something, you're like, you know what, man, what they just did is really neat. I want to do that. Like that's when you know somebody is just doing amazing work. Yeah, and it's not like he took that from another game. Like that's something that he envisioned and created. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really impressive. Like I can steal things from other games all day long, <laughs> but taking time to think of something that is that that just looks that good and so unique. Um, I think that's to be commended. So, uh, what were your sort of memorable locations and levels in the game? It's hard for me to pick one. I mean, the graphics as a whole, like I've mentioned, they just looked so unique and distinct that just the game overall is very memorable to me. There isn't a a, a specific world or level that really, I'd say, stands out over the other ones, for me anyway. When it comes to the essential question of fun factor and replayability, what's your verdict, Mr. Hanley? I'd say it's in my top three um, of homebrews that have come out. And if you want to take it a step further and say multiplayer homebrews, it might be at the top. Like, I can't think of a game that I would rather play. And that's even putting it in the list of licensed games. Like, if my friends are coming over, um, and they want to play Nintendo, I'm putting this game in because I really think that it sort of bridges the gap between retro games and maybe modern games that uh, people that don't play a lot of old Nintendo games maybe aren't as you know familiar with. Like it really, you know, the scrolling, um, just the way that it handles physics and just gameplay in general, I think that it really does a good job of sort of bridging the gap between retro and modern games. Yeah, we've thrown it in at, what, three conventions now, or at least back mm-hmm. rooms of them, and 
it has just been a hit. I mean, developers see it and they're like, well, I give up. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> if this is what other people are doing, I'm out. I, I can't do this level of work. And yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Like you are so intimidated by how good some of this stuff is. And you like, you can't see yourself ever producing something at this level. But at the same time, it inspires you to want to do more. Yes, it does. And, and the, the fun factor... For me, like, this is kind of it. I mean, this and possibly Lizard, because we're recording this episode before we <laughs> actually have a chance to play Lizard, so I don't know. I just have so much hope. Um, yeah, I was surprised because you, you've for so long from, you know, when the demo of Lizard came out for the longest time, you were saying that was, you know, the top of your homebrew list. And it seems like this is sort of, you know, I know we haven't gotten to Lizard the full game yet, but it seems like this has sort of surpass that uh in your list it has only because i know brad changed the uh, single screen to a scrolling screen and that makes me worried and i haven't got to play it yet and i really wasn't expecting to like this game as much as i did and i just i was hooked i mean i played it back to back for like eight days straight just every chance i got <laughs> and I, I don't normally play for score i don't normally play for speed i mean i was recording myself i was playing all sorts of like you know different ways i was finding finding all sorts of secrets and finding trying to find bugs and and whatever else giving feedback i mean i like to give feedback but different types of feedback than i normally do and fighting like i was i was almost like getting kind of violent in these these forum discussions about like <laughs> Hey, we should change this. And I was like, you will not change that. You will leave it alone. <laughs> because it is perfect. All right. Well, on that note, you say that it's perfect. Um, and we've done nothing but sort of heap praise on this game. But the only thing, the only negative thing I've heard you say is that you want more. Like, is there anything else that you would sort of criticize or change about this game? Want more can mean many things. I mean, if, if, if it was only 10 minutes and it was 10 awesome minutes, I mean, I could want a lot more. But, you know, the full game, I can beat the game at this point, having played it, I don't know how many times now, uh, all the way through, and like basically more or less speed running it, I can beat it in, you know, 50 minutes or so, whereas it would have taken me probably, I don't know, four hours, five hours the first time through, maybe it was only like two and a mm -hmm. half. So like, it is kind of short, and that's why you have to sort of change your challenges. I, I do wish it was longer. I wish there was more to... Not more to do, but more areas to traverse because there's a, I'm still finding like secret warp points and different things that I didn't know were there. And that to me is, it's, it's like how somebody just found that extra one up in SMB one, like two years ago. And it was like, after 30 years, you just found it. And it was like, yeah, <laughs> like this is that type of game where they, they've hid stuff so well. It's like, wow, I just like jumped half a screen away. I didn't know I could do that. So there are war points? I, di I didn't say that. Well, I apparently need to go back and play some more. I didn't come across any oh, yeah, of those. there's war points. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My only other thing is the only control that I really have trouble with in the game is the ropes. And yeah. kind of, they used to be more straightforward where you just were on the rope. And then at some point, like strafing was added where you could go left or right. And the ropes were slow enough to begin with. That's what was causing me to die. And the strafing has just caused me to die even more. I played through it again last week. And I think my only three deaths were due to the strafing. So it's like, ah, 
I wish that hadn't like made it in, but it did. And Arm from Battle had the same problem. Like Frank took away the B button returns to the castle at some point. And I still hit the B button thinking it'll return to the castle because it's, it gets ingrained <laughs> in you that like this is how the game is. And so that's one of like the downsides to testing a project is developers tend to cut some of your favorite features. But, you know, as a whole, like you get I think other people will get used to it. I'll probably go back and play that original version that didn't have it. But, uh, you know, whatever. So it's funny that you mentioned that because when I was playing this game yesterday, and it was probably the first time that I've played it since MAGFest, um, which was back in January. So it's been some time. Um, so I didn't remember a whole lot you know, from the game, too many details. But when I got to the ropes, it seemed like some of the time I could jump into them and climb up. And some of the times I couldn't like, it almost seemed like I had a hard time discerning like what tiles around there were passable and what wasn't um and that might just be like a noob thing like i don't know what the heck i'm doing i need more time (laughs) with it um but i i was having trouble with the ropes also i think it is a noob thing because like there the collisions and stuff are so spot on in this game it's nuts okay well uh i guess the jury's still out on my end for that (laughs) we'll just have to see what other people have to say i guess yeah and that being said, like as much as I I wish the game was longer, there is still parts of the game that I know I could spend more time in and explore and find some satisfaction in. So beyond just, you know, going faster and better. Yeah, and I think there's there's something to be said for a nice game that you can sit down and knock out in an hour. Like it sometimes that's all the time you have and to play such you know a beautifully polished game i think that you get a pretty good sense of satisfaction oh yeah especially you know as we get older and we have less time or whatnot so i hear around the forums you know people don't have time for the 80 hour (laughs) rpg anymore guess i'm living the dream (laughs) people and their kids kids do that um (laughs) yeah you know it is it's very satisfying just to to find a game to just fall into step with it and to be able to just sink some time into it, play it, master it, and then keep growing in that masterness. Master. Well put. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the game is on Kickstarter right now, if we're timing things right. Can you tell us about the the different sort of tiers, like the different options that people have to, uh, to get this game? Yeah, so uh, the game is offered in kind of a digital format, a CIB format, you know, complete in box, a CIB plus a poster and a soundtrack, and then kind of a limited version. It's got, you know, a special colored cartridge and, you know, it's still a full CIB and it's got the uh, soundtrack, the poster, certificate of authenticity, it looks like, and um, oh, and your name goes in the manual, which is always sort of a nice touch. It's always... It always feels kind of weird, like, oh, I don't know if I want my name in a manual. And then you get the manual, and you're like, hey, my name's in there. That's sort of cool. <laughs> I made this happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I found my name in several books, and it's like, that's weird and neat, and I like it. I'll do that again. Yeah, it's cool that they're releasing the soundtrack. Um, you don't see too many homebrews for Nintendo, anyway. I, I don't remember many actually including the soundtrack. Plus, I think the soundtrack that's included in this Kickstarter has bonus tracks that aren't even found in the game. Antoine of uh, Twin Dragons fame, he's doing the board production because it, you know, it's an Enron board. He sort of designed his own board with uh, Paul's help, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Uh, Paul, I am Infinite NES Live's help. 
and he sort of got that going. So yeah, he's over in Europe. He's helping him out. He's a fellow Frenchman for um, Nicholas. Is there anything that guy doesn't do? Come on. So over all these years, you know, Julius has sort of been known for Super Bat Puncher and Nicholas is, you know, somewhere overseas drawing some amazing stuff. But these guys have been relatively quiet uh, around the internets and uh, forums and whatnot. And so we are going to chat with them about Micromages and some of that. Oh, I can't wait. Let's do that. We are here with Julius from Morphcat Games and Nicholas from Atelier Bito. Bitu. 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 <laughs> and Nicholas from Atelier Bitu. And they have been working on their new game, Micromages. Uh, we kind of lured them onto the podcast to talk about uh, their new game, Micromages, but really, we're just going to talk about uh, Super Bat Puncher. So can you tell us a bit about that, Julius? <laughs> no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, man. You've got this new, exciting game. What uh, a good start. <laughs> it's, very, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, you have like nothing we've seen before on the, uh, the NES. So I guess, uh, when did development of Micromages begin? So we started basically, I'm, I'm Julius, by the way, hello. Uh, we started <laughs> uh, like two and a half years ago. It was in, in November 2015. Yeah, right. Something like I mean, we were planning to make like a, a test project for Kickstarter, nothing too ambitious, like one month and we're done, basically. Yeah, one month. Yeah. <laughs> well, How'd that go? <laughs> Uh, not as well as we expected, but, uh, we didn't expect much actually. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we were like one month in two months, three months, and it was playable sort of, but we, we thought like, yeah, we limited to ourselves to this, uh, NROM limitations, limitation that means 40 kilobytes for the whole game. And <laughs> after three months, we were just like, yeah, let's make the best NROM game we can. So, fast forward two years and now, did you guys did you guys know each other before you started working on this? We meet before. Um, hello, I'm Nicola. By the way, um, we meet before for a game jam. Okay. We worked for three days and we have uh, done uh, Banana Nana. It was a small yeah. NES game. Oh yeah, that was super impressive too. Uh, that was like one of my favorite projects that. Hasn't yep. gone Same. much further. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of a <laughs> kind of a repeating pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this time finally, I think we're we're on to something that we can actually release. So yeah, I hope people bear with us. Uh, so were both of you sort of involved with Micromages from day one, or was did this start as one of your projects and then become both of yours? How'd that kind of work? Yeah, yeah, we both uh, started on this at one. Actually, it was like, yeah, banana, nana. We wanted to continue it, but we knew it was too ambitious of a project, and we were just like, let's let's start something small. And yeah, and actually, we were developing banana nana after the game jam. It was like during six months, something like that. Yeah, and it was uh, coming winter time, and we start to be tired about it. <laughs> Yeah. So we decided to say, let's make a small break, one month. Let's do yeah, yeah, let's make a yeah, a small break, side project. And you know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
A lot of times the side projects become the main projects. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we made it a point to finish the game before this time, before we actually release any info about it. But then we already really teased the game heavily on Twitter and Facebook. And yeah, now there's more out there than we are comfortable with. But <laughs> it's, it, we're really nearing the end of development. So. <laughs> So when did you guys each first uh, get started working with the NES? So on my side, I start NES. It was uh, uh, 2014 with uh, Nerdy Nights. Uh, so I was making uh, this Pong uh, stuff. And uh, I met Julius because I, I moved to, to Berlin. And uh, then I say, oh, uh, we can meet. And uh, he come uh, by me and uh, which he, he look a little bit my punk and discover <laughs> all, all the mess. What oh, was that was an amazing source code. It was uh, <laughs> horrible, but but uh, it was working. I was more spending time on graphics <laughs> optimization yeah. as uh, on a really uh, correct code. So and after uh, yeah, it was uh, how I I, I start with uh, learning uh, ISM. So um, that's it. Uh, I'm not really good at coding more about graphics. Yeah, but I mean, to pull uh, to even pull off a pong clone on NES, you you know, I have I have respect for you, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so with Micromages, you've done most of the programming, Julius and Nicholas. You're in charge of the art, of course, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it was uh, 2005, I think. I think when oh, the wow. first version of Famitracker was released or something, I got into making chip tunes, and uh, yeah, from there it didn't take long to like. Basically, somewhere 2006, 2005, I downloaded all the technical documents that were available on Nestev, and I sank my teeth into them for a couple of weeks, months, and then yeah, I came out a Nest homebrew, I guess, but never released anything. <laughs> You started programming before Nerdy Nights even came out. Exactly, yeah. That's that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I have a background in low lower level programming languages mostly. Ah. Yeah, that made it not that bad. But I've never actually programmed on a on a limited system as limited as the NES before, and there were some really really tough cha- challenges to overcome and yeah things to think about differently. Absolutely. Bubble Bobble was one of the greatest multiplayer games on the NES. Uh, Micromages seems to capture the feel of this game, but sort of takes it to another level by including much more elaborate level design, you know, with secrets and checkpoints and boss fights. Was Bubble Bobble an inspiration in any way? Um, And if not, what game or games sort of inspired you during the development of this game? Yeah, uh, you're right. Actually, we were uh, taking some referat uh, games, for example, exactly uh, Bubble Bubbles. And uh, so it's to give... I don't remember that. Yeah, we were talking. <laughs> I mean, at the beginning, we talked about... Yeah, uh, okay. I remember I was checking the chat to have a look. And uh, so it was Bubble Bubble and uh, a little bit also of uh, Castlevania. Uh, okay. Was, uh, ambient mood. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, also a bit of uh, Mega Man, of course, for the shooting and all the, the, the wall jump. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, Mega Man, it was uh, more in Super uh, Nintendo, the World Jump. Yeah, right, and Mega Man X. And yeah. uh, a little bit of Super Mario Bros. Uh, in the Definitely, gameplay yeah. and level design. 
So we, we take a little bit of different game uh, mechanic and gameplay to get inspiration and, and uh, f- make all, uh, I mean, with uh, multiplayer, so four player maximum. So yeah, we get yeah. this result. Actually, a lot of people compare it to Super Meat Boy. Yeah, also. It wasn't directly yeah. an inspiration, mm-hmm. but you have some some uh, saw mechanic saws or something in the wall, yeah, on the walls and stuff. And you have, I mean, it's heavily the game is heavily based around wall jumping, so I can see where that's coming from. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Is that how the the game kind of grew? Was based off of these sort of core mechanics like wall jumping and scrolling and multiplayer, or was it more thematic? Yeah, that was about it. I mean, initially, I was thinking like to make an. I don't know if you remember games like Icy Tower for the PC. No. Uh, it's like a vertically scrolling thing with platforms spawning randomly. So you tr- try to climb and not fall down. And I was thinking something along those lines. And uh, one month might be might have been more feasible for this. Like without actually designing levels, everything is generated randomly. Mm-hmm. But then we were like, yeah. I mean, I think the graphics Nicola came with came up with they were like some medieval uh fantasy magical kind of stuff and we just rolled with that so yeah actually the mechanics were were there before the theme yeah interesting so what was the collaborative process like in regards to level design boss design did one of you primarily come up with things or was there what was the give and take like i guess that's hard to say initially we we both uh pitched pitched in ideas and then threw out some and it's hard to say who who made what at this point but uh, <laughs> uh nicola definitely did uh all of the graphics save for some animations and stuff i helped him with and yeah he also made the ended up making all the level design i just basically made the tools for him the map editor tileset editors and that stuff and then oh, i let him work on that yeah, and we yeah. needed um, actually for the the map system. We make many time different tool to try to yeah. optimize. So it was oh my god, that was we remake, that was hell. We remake all the levels. I don't know five uh, times and always differently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was my god, taking so much time. I mean, yeah. Do you do you guys have time for this <laughs> for a little oh, yeah. extra story? I mean, we were like first we were using like uh the standard, like as Super Bad Puncher did, I think, 16 by 16 meta tiles. And the level data ended up something like 20 kilobytes or 16 kilobytes, which was way too much if you have just 40 kilobytes for the whole game. And then we made 32 by 32 meta tiles, which was still too much. Uh, and then we we made a... I mean, uh, when you're releasing this podcast, I guess the Kickstarter will be running. So we have... Uh, we have prepared a little docu video with all the hardware details, uh, like the technical details of how the game works and how we crunched numbers and fit everything into forty kilobytes. And yeah, you can you can see our pros- the process of how we refined the level format. And uh, yeah, I, I I can't even explain it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I had the great opportunity to play a few games of Micromages at MAGFest last year, or was it this year? Earlier this year, with four players, um, and it was w- one of the most fun you know I've ever had playing the NES. Did you know <laughs> right away uh, that you wanted to design it for four players when you started to make the game, or was the idea to add four-player support, did it come later? No, absolutely. Um, in fact, the decision uh, to use 8x8 sprites, 8x8 pixel sprites, uh, was made exactly because uh, we wanted to have four players. We were also thinking, well, what what is the NES library truly lacking? Mm-hmm. And we want to come up with something new. I mean, we could have just made a side-scrolling platformer again, but we were like, yeah, you know, all the four-player games on the NES, they're more like single screen or arcade experiences or sports games or whatever. Uh, we want to to let the players be able to take their friends and go on a go on a full-fledged adventure and uh yeah with an with an ending with bosses and all that kind of stuff i remember um it was at the really beginning uh we wanted to make a multiplayer game but we didn't know if it would be two player or four player Mm. And uh, after one week or two, we say, uh, if we make multiplayer, let's go to four. Yeah, exactly. And uh, after that, we start to see about limitation, uh, all this thing, and the size of sprites. So, so it's how it happens that we we make a four player. But it was from the beginning like that. Actually. Yeah, pretty much. It's crazy to me because I initially played it as a single player game, and you know, really just loved it just playing it by myself. But uh, when I got to finally play it multiplayer, I noticed the really kind of innovative feature that allows the players to continue after they die as ghosts and collect power-ups and swap places and come back to life and all that. I don't think I've really seen that a lot, the the out-of-match stuff that can that still continues to affect the current state of gameplay. Uh, did anything specific kind of inspire that feature? I think we get uh, some idea because we wanted to have a, a multiplayer game, fun like, um, who give fun like Bomberman. But in the same time, the problem with Bomberman is when you die, you, you have nothing to do. You need to wait mm-hmm. to uh, win or die. And, uh, I remember it was, uh, I think it was in, uh, one Bomberman on uh, PlayStation. Maybe that when you, you die, you appear on the side and you can throw bomb. You are not oh, in the game and yeah. you can throw bomb. So it was, uh-huh. it was some kind of, uh, giving a possibility to people who are not in the game to stay in game and, uh, to disturb the other. And, um, so from that, it was like, maybe we can make something similar, but differently that the player still enjoy to be in the game and maybe help or something like that. But oh, interesting. The, I mean, the ghost, the, the ghost idea, I think it came, uh, a little I, bit. I actually, like when I, I think I programmed this first and showed you, or maybe you told me, I don't know, but I think it was, for me, it was inspired from Mario Kart 64. When you have, uh, when you do balloon, balloon battle in Mario Kart 64 and, uh, with three play with three players or more, yeah, and one dies, uh, you you get to be this little bomb bomb card, and you can try to run into another player to yep. blow blow them up. <laughs> That's I mean, I think I was inspired by that, but I don't maybe, remember who actually came up with the idea. Yeah, so. but it is like two <laughs> yeah. years ago, two yeah, years yeah. and a half, so we don't remember. But I guess that 
it was during our talks right. and, uh, we yeah i mean that's a that's a for me it was clear like the worst thing about a multiplayer game like this is the the downtime that you get to do nothing and I mean, if you if you die and you want to grab a drink uh, and you're a ghost, yeah, you're free, free. You're free to do so. You can, <laughs> and, uh, you can just join join later. And I mean, the cool thing is also like if you have. Uh, I know my mom; she can beat maybe one level, and after that, she's she's gonna be the ghost the whole time. But you can still. <laughs> I mean, you can still help your your friends. Uh, or your son in that case the whole time through the game so it's really it makes it more of a party game i guess with where a right range of skill levels can contribute and yeah. and also we notice when we make some uh, uh, events and we present the early version of this game uh even kids and yeah. and uh, casual or, or people of more um uh, skills can enjoy it all together. So we get sometimes some group of people totally different. They don't know each other, but they join just to grab the controller and play. And we saw that uh, even if a kid's a kid will die fast and uh, will turn into a ghost and uh, still enjoy it. So yeah, actually, many players prefer to be the ghost. They're like really disappointed when they get back to life collecting. No, <laughs> yeah, no, they jump into the pit again. Yeah, now I can be ghost again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was unexpected. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Micromages features a really modern feeling scrolling engine. There, you know, there's a very slow sort of auto scroll implemented, but when the ge- the game also sort of catches up if you jump faster than the scrolling is going. Was it hard determining the right speed for the game? Yeah, we I'm I remember I spent a lot of time uh fine tuning that thing so the yeah the game adjusts to where you are on screen in single player mode it's all right i mean if you if you're lagging behind uh if you're on the bottom of the screen the game will go really slow to let you there's always some pressure and many people don't like it but it's not so as bad as like uh auto scrolling levels in super mario bros 3 or whatever nobody yeah. like them yeah if you go fast you can still make a speed run the scrolling will go faster but uh, where this system really shines, I think, is in multiplayer mode. I mean, the, the player that lags behind, he has to hurry a bit. But what, what the system basically does is it calculates a median value of all the player's Y positions on screen. And it adjusts the scrolling based on that. So if many all the players, if three players go up to the top of the screen and one lags behind, well, he's basically screwed. <laughs> uh, yeah it tries to adjust the scroll speed like that and it works fairly well i think i love how competitive the game gets even though it's it's very cooperative you know the ghosts can help the other players it also can be very competitive if you kind of screw your friends <laughs> absolutely i mean we saw it. i mean pl- players starting just out they usually go for co-op but when you have I mean, when you have amassed a certain certain amount of skill, uh, like when we play, when the two of us play nowadays, it's like <laughs> it's always we always fight for the score. We jump on each other's head to push each other down the pit, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, we we cannot play it any other way anymore. Yeah, so I've seen some of the early development 
kind of pixel art and sprite ideas and things like that. And, and they just looked amazing. Uh, the Minotaur was, you know, Cyclops or whatever. Uh, what sort of led to some of the changes you took? And will we some see some of this stuff sort of reappear down the road? Or is it, you know, is that just kind of stuff in the past? Uh, I think there is uh, uh, the early graphics of Micromages. Uh, I don't think we'll use them after. Uh, and you always tell me like, here, I made a cut. He's always like this. Hey, I made a new couple of sprites. And I'm like, we don't have any space more. And he's like, yeah, we can use them in <laughs> yeah, a later I mean, project. I mean, the, the uh, <laughs> late, latest uh, uh, sprite. I mean, uh, there is uh, maybe few that, okay, uh, to keep it for future, but mostly... Uh, I, w I, I don't think yeah. we can use it, but there is a, a lot of sprite and graphics that uh, we didn't show. We will see in the future, but uh, the all the game uh, for the, for example, for the background, it is a lot of reused tiles from other parts and uh, try to combine to to make something a little bit pretty or okay. So even for a future game, uh, maybe it will not work. Uh, also, it is because we don't give a lot of information uh, about uh, our project in the past. It's it's also uh, a little bit frustrating that uh, to work like this and to make graphics and that only a few people can see it, not a lot. And um, so that's why it will be uh, very nice when the game will be out that we can work on new project and show more oh, yeah. of stuff. I mean, to make it a little bit more visible and also to share visual and, and uh, elements. Yes, yeah, for sure. Nah, I love the backstories. I think you guys know that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, you we're preparing all the old graphics and stuff in this forum post. Yeah, yeah okay. Oh, cool. maybe, maybe we can share some of that at some point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make a real documentation of the whole thing. Maybe. So the level of polish in this game is very very high you know the controls feel perfect which is pretty hard to do on a platformer um i mean you can even sort of shoot the torches lining the walls like there's so much little details that you put into it it's pretty awesome but what was the process for perfecting the graphics um was it a back and forth type thing with nicholas sort of sending the graphics to you and you telling him what you didn't like and him tweaking things or was it just sort of perfect from the start, everything he sent was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely perfect from the start. No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of some of the things he did initially, we still have it in the like the. I think the stone blocks you came up after two iterations or something. Yeah. So we had the, these from the very start, and they just looked amazing. We didn't need to change anything. Even few few enemies. Yeah, yeah. Some with sprites, it was a bit harder. I think. We had a lot of back and forth and with mm -hmm. animations. I, I have a knack for animations. So, I mean, I think that was the strong point of Super Bad Panther also. Where I yeah, for graphics. sure. And tile sets, not so much, but animations, I'm really into that. And I had a lot of gripes with the stuff he came up with, but eventually <laughs> uh, he surpassed my expectations. And yeah. Uh, it was good because uh, it was like a... I, uh, I was working, sending something via uh, Telegram, and he was checking, yeah. and then give, uh, give, uh, make some feedback and critique. And so it was always like working on and try to find uh, some solution to get a result that are uh, giving satisfaction yeah. for both of us. 
Yeah, but really the best was when we when we meet for the weekend. And I'm so happy we're actually living uh, close to each other. Otherwise, I think this game would have never come to exist. Yeah, totally. it, it helps so much uh, to actually be able to talk to each other and uh, to see, to work for a weekend with yeah, pizza yeah. And, and yeah, and junk food and. So one thing this game does a really great job of that you don't see a lot or enough of anyways in games is sort of the risk versus reward layout for level design. You know, with the constant vertical scrolling, you have to make conscious decisions about what you're going to grab and what you're not going to with the treasure chests and boxes and points and all that, even just with the hearts that come up. Was this kind of was this style of gameplay kind of inspired by anything specific? About the level design or the gameplay mechanic in general um just the general like uh placing stuff out of the way forcing the player to make all those types of decisions uh constantly throughout you know that's like a key part of the game that you don't see in a lot of games as i said before we had many iterations of the maps and level design so we remade the maps from scratch like three or four times and yeah, it eventually, eventually we, we started we started analyzing uh, how other games did stuff, and I think the the really good uh, thing about making a linear game like this with one directional scrolling is that uh, level design gets a lot easier to get right, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it, it eventually just crystallized uh, into what we have now. We we still have some gripes with it actually, but yeah, it's pretty decent. Nicola, did you want to say anything? Um, no, I mean uh, actually, the, we make uh, a lot of time uh, so the level design and modification and checking some uh, how Nintendo could do yeah. it. Also, how they they uh, they present enemy progressively or or put some item or. I mean, this, uh, we analyze it and check also on YouTube some people who explain some level design stuff. So we get this kind of content. And, um, and also after it is trying to see, uh, maybe like, uh, when you play Nintendo games, also on Game Boy or uh, NES, you can feel how they try to make traps to push you in some area like, oh, it is open way. So you go there and actually you have some uh, other ways that more tiny that you will don't go from your first wish. So after playing a lot of uh, Nintendo uh, game, Super Mario or, I mean, uh, Game Boy games from them, you start to understand how they they make it. So it's helped us uh, a lot to design uh, our game. Absolutely true. Uh, but really, the number one thing I recommend to any developer is get beta testers. Because <laughs> after after two years of playing the same game over and over again, you just you just get blind to the the flaws. And if you, I mean, what we did, which is a very very, I tried to do it on Super Bad Puncher, but it wasn't quite our process wasn't quite refined uh, back then is to uh, let your beta testers uh, record their first ga- first time gameplay of the game and send send you a video of it. Or like, for example, if you, they play in an emulator like FCUX, you have a movie record function and uh, the files it produces are relatively small, so you can easily send them, upload them somewhere. And you can just check how people react to the obstacles 
you designed and yeah we noticed some pretty pretty substantial flaws and we had to I mean, usually the developer syndrome, if you never get get it, get other people to test it, it's like, I noticed this with Bad Puncher. You think the game is pretty slow and easy, and then you get let someone else play it, and it looks like, wow, they have a lot of <laughs> trouble with the controls. That It seems really floaty for them, and we, we reduced the speed, I think, of the characters and jumping and everything. We reduced it like... Uh, five or six times at least. Uh, oh, wow. and, we, and now I played again yesterday after a long time. And uh, again, it felt much too fast. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe <laughs> oh, wow. there will be a seventh iteration of that. I don't know. Also, I remember it was uh, uh, maybe six months after we started the project. We get some version of the game and we could uh, present uh, oh, yeah. uh, for one day in uh, Berlin uh, to the Computerspiel Museum. Uh, our game and um, so for the first time we get some live uh, uh, live tests from people who just discover the game and I remember the first half an hour we discovered that people from the start couldn't uh, um, understand the gameplay and yeah. the world champ so very fast we take our laptop on the corner of the museum <laughs> exactly. try to edit the, the map and to change the level design very fast at the first screen and to uh, change the run directly and uh, put it in. <laughs> yeah, and it actually fun. it was a very uh, uh, good moment to to learn how to to get the feedback yeah directly. i mean if you can get take your game to any local events like we have a couple here in berlin uh but if you can get them to any events where you can have a lot of feedback of new players playing your game for the first time and watching over their shoulders how they react without, to the stuff. It is the best. Without explaining them the, the controls. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, don't explain anything. Just let them alone with the game and see what they come up with, how they solve the stuff. It is really... Yeah, we could, we, the game would have been not as good if we didn't have this much feedback. Oh, I remember the first time I turned it on, I didn't know it was vertical scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> that was that to me was the most shocking thing. I was like, wait a second, things are moving. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was it's you get, you know, raw feedback that way. Uh, was there anything besides sort of the general speed? I mean, what what was the contribution of the testers in the process? Were there any major changes that were made to your sort of core design or how did that work? It was the speed was a big one. Um, I think it was mostly level design parts, like the bosses were too hard, or some some information was not conveyed correctly. Like, but on the on the first boss, uh, you have this mechanic of well, I, I will not say I will not spoil it, but you have a certain mechanic that you need to understand. And so we were like, how can we convey it better? Because um, some people lost all their lives there, and they did not get it. So we added a little cutscene at the beginning that shows what's going to happen. And you can sort of catch it from there. But yeah, it was stuff like this, little stuff, stuff in level design. Like some people didn't catch that you can actually shoot upward. So one of the first obstacles is uh, blocks yeah, above you that you have to shoot. It's funny, both of those specific examples that you just gave are two things that I recognized as I was playing it. Um, so I think you did a very good job of of putting them in there to show the player that, hey, you can do this before you actually need to. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Way of introducing mechanics is just awesome. 
the music in Micromages is really great. Um, there's actually a neat little effect that happens when you enter a door at the end of the stage that um, it seems like the music kind of fades out in a really unique way. Um, who did the music and how was this effect accomplished? And I guess what was the working process like for the music? Yeah, the music. Oh, my God. I'm so happy. I don't want to touch this. I met a, a, a music driver, so music engine, specifically for this project that is based not around bytes, but nibbles. So you can have like uh, an effect like a chord or something I use on the second channel with an echo. It makes chords. So you can have a chord like uh, zero, uh, zero, zero, three, seven, which would be a minor chord or something with the intervals. And I don't know how to explain, but it would just, it would use one and a half bytes to decode, uh, to encode this information, like a half byte for each of the individual nodes. And I mean, everything was, is based around half bytes. So I can save as much, uh, space as I can. The whole thing, the whole music data fits into two kilobytes. Wow. Driver being an additional 500, 800 bytes. And uh, yeah, it uses a lot of repetition and repeats trans- transposition, so it transposes some sections to a higher note or lower note, and repeats them. And uh, while all, all, all while not trying trying to not make the th- all of that too obvious, so it it took a lot of time to, and basically all the music data there was no converter or anything from Framate Tracker. It all had to be input by hand via some. First, first I went with hex editing, but that was too tedious. So I wrote some MML-like language. Um, but who actually, who actually did the music? Oh, Julius Mech is the music. Yeah, that that was me. So okay. yeah, as oh, I said, wow. I had like now it's like 12, 13 years of Fami Tracker experience. I never, I never actually finished much, but yeah, it was my dream to finish a real game soundtrack, and I think I finally accomplished it here. Ah, oh, the music's wonderful. I was really surprised because somebody had said that you didn't do the music in Super Bat Puncher, and I was shocked because I thought that's, you had that's all these true, years. Yeah. No, no, uh, that was actually done by my uh, buddy Dave Harris. Mm. Who's yeah? I mean, he's very experienced and knowledgeable, but uh, maybe not so much on the technical side of things. And this time, it was like, yeah, I cannot make anyone else understand the music format. You need to put. <laughs> you need to put it into the game so I'll just make it myself and that was said. Oh and about the fade out effect actually what it's doing is like it fades out the two square channels and the noise channels so you have a volume control for this mm-hmm. so it, usually it's no problem you have some timer and you subtract a value from the volume based on that uh, but the triangle channel you cannot really fade out and uh so so you so you hear it keeps the bass keeps playing the bass is in the triangle channel and yeah i think a lot of nes games did it like that if they did have a fade out effect hmm. you guys have been pretty you kind of mentioned it already but you guys have been pretty secretive about micro mages over the years i mean you said you started back in you know two and a half years ago 2015 uh kind of only ever letting small tidbits out here and there why did you choose this approach? Uh, do you feel that it kind of helped uh, the game or your working method? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I had a 
I mean, I probably already lost my reputation <laughs> before, but we were like, yeah, come on, this time we don't announce anything. Like we have a, we need to make up for the bed puncher thing and the banana nana thing. We were continuing that for a while on Twitch streams. And it's like, yeah, I think, I think we need to finish a game before we, before we actually tell people about it. Because I mean, with Bad Puncher, it was people are still emailing me and asking about it. And, <laughs> oh, it really it it just hurts to give them the the response like, uh, yeah, sorry, Bad Puncher is discontinued, and I don't know if we will <laughs> ever get back to it. Uh, yeah, I think it's just it's just natural. Well, it's interesting you say you know that you know, your reputation after that, but that's also the game and project that sort of is the one that people know you by as sort of the best that the community has kind of almost ever come up with. Uh, so it goes both ways, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm very flattered by that. A lot of people say that. And that's like, I guess for the time, 2011, it was, it was pretty good. But when I released it, I could not see any, any merits, any advantages anymore. I just, I saw all <laughs> the flaws. I just wanted to get it out there. And then, wait wait a couple months and see uh, yeah <laughs> it was pretty bad uh, some other day the engine was really convoluted like i i just couldn't work with it anymore to design a new level it took days weeks and uh, i know i have i with this project i advanced so much i know i now have a i mean back then after bad puncher demo i was like yeah now you finally got a good grasp on the nes and you know how to lay out a project that it that the code base doesn't get in your way later on and yeah with the demo code base it was just too much to handle for me <laughs> interesting yeah i think uh when people normally talk about the best that the nes homebrew scene has seen i mean it's usually battle kid and super bat puncher like usually those are the two that come up most often i'd say so I wouldn't say that people are disappointed in any way. <laughs> yeah. Only that there's not going to be a full version release because they want more of it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. The least of evils, I guess, is is that people yeah. want more, not less. Yeah, exactly. I me, I remember it is uh, because of Super Bad Punch actually that yeah. I jump into Nesdev. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, it was in 2011 you released it. And at that time, I, I, I received uh, my old NES at home that my parents give me back. And I was checking online, what's up, if there is something new. And I see that uh, Hacks was existing and then the, a scene. And uh, a few months after, come Superbad Puncher. And I was like, wow, uh, the gameplay, the graphics are so good and music also. And uh, I say, OK, it is possible to do something. Let's, let's check how to do it. And then after a few years, I, I moved to Berlin and we meet. So actually, your game pushed me to 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 learn that and to make uh, any game. So oh. it's good. Huh. Was it intimidating when you went to meet him? Uh, no, actually, <laughs> well, I, I wrote you before. I remember before I come to Berlin, I was writing you. Oh, can you give me some tips? Uh, what what stuff I need to learn and stuff? And you you uh, show uh, me yeah. uh, nerdy nights and uh, oh my uh, god, that but. Honestly, <laughs> kudos. 
I mean, not everybody can can make an actual NES game, so that's what you got going through. But when I looked at the source code for the first time, <laughs> it is horrible. Whoa! <laughs> this guy, I need to. I need to. Uh, so and after yeah. I, I contact you when I arrive to Berlin to say, hey, I don't know if you remember me. Uh, I'm living uh, near. We can uh, meet and uh, let's play something. Speak about NES and. And you come to my place, we eat and we talk about ten years, and then you sh you saw my code, you laugh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then after we we continue to meet. And, oh, it was pretty easy. And yeah. that's one of the great things about the hobby is pretty much everybody's just so accessible. Like the the greats to the just starting outs, like it's everybody just kind of is helping each other out. Yeah, and now with all the Nestef compo. And that stuff going down. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to be hyped for, and it it seems like in the recent years, like with all these Nestef combos, finally the super bad puncher emails they have subsided a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like they're they're more hyped for other games now. So I'm glad about that. Thanks, guys. And let's talk about Kickstarter a little bit. Why did you choose to go with Kickstarter as the way to release this game? Um, and what do you think? it's going to like contribute to the overall success. Yeah, so actually we wanted to try <laughs> to try to do it the proper way at least once. Like this was supposed to be our Kickstarter test project. <laughs> yeah. And uh <sighs> <laughs> we're kind of regretting it now, but now we're so far in we we can't go back. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh my god, so we yeah, I mean, uh, to to make the Kickstarter, um, we saw before it was like uh, uh, Lizard who make Kickstarter and uh, mm -hmm. um, Glutark with Twin Dragons and uh, Super Russian Roulette. So we are thinking, okay, so I mean, to produce uh, a game and to get uh, the box manual and uh, enough amount, uh, so we need to pass also through Kickstarter. But uh, because we, we were afraid to get some problem uh, with the tax and all the things, sorry, it is in Germany uh, oh, problematic. Yeah. We, need, we need to 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 register a Mofcat game as a, some kind of enterprise, but small, and we start to be lost in the labyrinth of administration <laughs> paper stuff for eight months. It was oh, the nightmare. Wow. And uh, we still get, uh, I mean, uh, some trouble with the paper stuff. So, I mean, we we meet because we want to make games, not to make administration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, <laughs> now we regret a little bit, but actually, it, we need to make one this thing with the paper stuff, yeah. and for the next project after it, we it will go more. Yeah, I don't know if we want to do another Kickstarter. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but it was good to have. I mean. Uh, I mean, after after you're, after you're through with it, you'll like. It's a certain. I don't know if you'll ever need it again, but it's like it's a good thing to know, like how to found your own company and stuff, and it forces you to acquire a lot of skills. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you never know uh, how you're gonna use it later or when it might come in handy. But yeah, it's a lot of trouble, especially with how we're working. Like we have our day jobs on the side and. Uh, we're taking everything really slowly. We're like, yeah, if a feature takes two months to implement, no problem. We 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 don't set any deadlines for ourselves. We just work on it until it feels good, until we think we're done. And 
that's our process. And yeah, that's, that got a little shaken up by the uh, administration stuff where you, you don't have that much freedom there. <laughs> people, people, I think generally know that NES games take a long time to make themselves, but I don't think they realize that releasing the game is almost just as much work. Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't realize it yeah, before. We, we, either, but now so. we, we realize it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. But um, also the, the, the thing with Kickstarter, it is like we wanted that all is ready so that the game is ready, the, the, even the box and manual uh, data are ready. So also all this part uh, was taking time. So, yeah, so basically we're just raising funds for the cartridge production. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. I hear anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we've all we all know the stories about uh, NES. Not even NES; it's indie games in general, or games in general uh, on Kickstarter, passing the the deadline, <laughs> estimated date yeah. many <laughs> times. Yeah. You can make all the all the estimations you make, uh, multiply them by ten or something, and it might still not be. Yeah, then multiply them by mm-hmm. ten again when they don't happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so with you being from Germany, Julius, and you being from France, Nicholas, like what are the homebrew communities like over there? We, we hear very little about, uh, the homebrew communities in Europe. Do they, do they exist? <laughs> I know of like two, like, uh, this guy, lazy, lazy cow. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wolfling. yeah he made the wolfling. Exactly. He's from Germany. And then there was some other guy getting into it, maybe two. And apart from that, no, not really. The NES wasn't really as popular here. It's, I think it was the Commodore 64 that was really, really popular here. And you have a lot of demo sceners and homebrewers on that platform, I think. And you have the Super Nintendo, which was really popular here, and you have some homebrewers there, and NES, really, not so many. How about France? Um, in France, uh, for the moment, I know only uh, Glutok, uh, who make Twin Dragons. Apart of that, I I don't know um, the, the the community uh, NESDEV in, in France because I, I moved to Germany, but, I mean, NES was really popular in uh, in France and also uh, Super Nintendo. So it, I see appearing uh, more people going to, to NES Homebrew. Uh, it was like, uh, I saw Project Passing. It is a Saturday man. And there is also another guy who work on some, like a Super Smash Bros for NES, but with some kind of orcs. Uh. Oh, Super Tilt Brothers. Yeah. Yep. So with the, I've noticed that the community is a little better in, in France, uh, and I can sort of make out the French a little bit, but with the NES not being quite so popular in Germany, what caused you guys to want to start making games for it, I guess? Uh, was it a factor in your childhood? Was it something you just discovered later? Like you kind of touched on it, but I, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, for me, it was uh, a friend kindergarten friend uh had an nes and uh once a month i went by his place and could play the nes for a few hours and uh that that made that basically made it something sort of unattainable for me like the holy grail and i think that (laughs) that screwed with my head a little and i just (laughs) 
I mean, I got back, I forgot for a while about this console in the late 90s and 2000s. I wasn't really playing any consoles anymore. But then it got back to me in 2005 and I remembered all the things, all the good times spent. And yeah, that's sad. And um, I mean, on my side in France, it was like, uh, I get the NES, it was my first console. And also uh, my best friend at that time get uh, also NES. So we were always like each afternoon, like going to play something like Mega Man, never finish it, normal. <laughs> and, <laughs> and all Turtle Ninja. Michael's game was Turtle Ninja. It was trauma. Turtle uh, Ninja. Yeah, it was uh, dramatically hard. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so it, I, I keep it long, this console. Uh, and even I was still playing it when the people were, uh, with the PlayStation one. So, and, uh, looking in the uh, floor mark, some, new game and stuff. So it was a little bit weird at that time for my friends that I still play this console. But anyway, uh, I mean, that's why maybe it's pushed me to, to dig in this, uh, in this way to see how to make graphics and level design and stuff. So I know it's probably hard to think ahead since you guys still have so much work to do to, to get this, you know, out with the Kickstarter and everything. But do you have any indication of what you want to do after? Uh, this game is out. We've got a couple, like, couple ideas. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know, I don't know if we should talk about them. We have a lot of. What I'd really like to bring to the NES is like, uh, is isometric games, and mm. uh, I mean, I played a lot the uh, Snake Rattle and Roll in the past this mm-hmm. year, this year, and uh, it's a really good game, but it's also frustratingly hard, and there are some things, some design elements. I think there's a lot more potential there to make a, an isometric platformer, and maybe maybe we'll have a go at that. Or we're going to try some other consoles in the future, I don't know. So can I take your engine after you make that, and so I can make a Marble Madness sequel? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Maybe, maybe we're going to release it, actually. That's a cool thing with an isometric engine. You can do so much stuff with it. Today we were playing on the Super Nintendo Kirby's Dream Course, that golf game, which is also isometric. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, lot to do there. But honestly, uh, the color limitations of the NES uh, making an isometric game that looks good is it, quite a challenge. It is possible. It is. Possible. Yeah, yeah, I know you have I, got some ideas. I get. I'm, I'm curious to see. Yeah. And, uh, and I was gonna say possible. he's gonna he's gonna hate <laughs> you because of the attribute tables. But if if he's on board, then then the battle's won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he likes the challenge. That's that's. I'm glad about that. I made him go through so much. I like, mean, uh, for Micromages, for example, it was like... Yeah, even by the 8 by 8 pixel sprites he was giving me. <laughs> it was so <laughs> hard. At the, I mean, at the beginning, it is, for example, for Micromages, limitation, uh, 8 by 8 pixel, it is so tiny and, and, oh my God. But, I mean, after a few months, maybe after one year, you get into it and you can find some solution. But We're never going to do another no. 8 by 8 pixel base. <laughs> no, it's no, no, so no, no, detailed. No. They're great. <laughs> yeah. But it took a long time, actually. Too. And uh, yeah, I mean, for next game, if it is isometric, um, I mean, uh, if the sprites are bigger, it would be very helpful. For yeah, me. absolutely. Uh, so we have to ask, just because you know of your previous history, 
Uh, is there anything you want to say about Super Bat Puncher to either keep fans at bay, to give them hope, to close the door? <laughs> this is a chance to just quit. Stop getting those emails, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, well, what can I say? Uh, I've... I'm basically done with the project. I mean, I'd like to revisit it sometime, but I I personally think it's not... Maybe it would be more of a different game because I personally think it's not... And people will hate me for this, but it's not unique enough. Like, it's a side-scrolling sort of Metroidvania thing. And yeah, you've had all that before on the NES, sort of. Uh, the mechanic is pretty cool. I gotta it is admit. neat. <laughs> I don't know how I came up with it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd just like to say uh, thank you for all the feedback, everyone out there. It kept me motivated to make more NES stuff, not Bad Puncher per se, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was... <laughs> well, it's got to be hard. Like You're like the child prodigy who you know did this great thing, and then like he's like a 30-year-old, you know boozed up on the curb you know with the sign um <laughs> well that's, no, that's pretty accurate, even maybe. better stuff now but people are unwilling to sort of see that <laughs> yeah exactly exactly when when i mean i can understand i think personally my skills have grown a lot since then and nowadays we can we can bring a lot more to the table I think if we really put our minds to it, especially with Nicola, I mean, just adding another team, just not doing solo game dev, uh, having two people already makes the thing, the process so much more fluid and worthwhile. Well, I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. Actually, I've told you multiple times in the exact same words because I tend to do that. After you play Micromages, you forget that Super Bat Puncher even exists. It is that good. <laughs> so I, people just have to give it a chance, and that's it. <laughs> I sure hope so. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. All right, so I want to thank both of you guys for coming on. I know that um, finding a time that worked for all of us was tough because you're over the pond, so to say. Um, so... Appreciate you both making time for us. Uh, I'm very excited for everyone to check out your game. Um, but I do want to sort of close this out just to sort of feature some music for the game. Do either of you have a favorite song from the game that you'd like to feature? Yeah, I think... I mean, my personal favorite is the World Worlds 2 theme, but... Yes! That was the one I was hoping for. <laughs> ah, great. Yeah, I think most people like World 4 best. I don't know. What's I your favorite? Me, I prefer the World 4, but okay. 2 is, is good also. I mean, yeah, I We'll know. play them both at the same time. Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that will make it even better. <laughs> All right, well, is there anything else you guys want to say um, before we cut you off? I mean, thanks a lot. Uh... Thanks for anyone supporting, and thanks thanks for keeping the homebrew uh, scene flourishing to all of you. But yeah, I mean, we make it this stuff uh, because because it's our like it's fun. It's just our calling, I guess. Uh, but it's so cool that people when I when I started out, I didn't think anyone would ever pay attention to these. To these games and uh, now we get so much influx influx of new talent yeah i'm really really glad to see how the scene has developed thanks 
I'm hoping you'll be happily surprised with the uh, success of your Kickstarter and and the support you get from from people who just want to play it. So we shall see. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but here is the level two music from Micromages. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. So what have you been uh, up to these days? These days? Yeah, these days. Now that boxes are finally kind of hopefully going, and I I am really excited to get back to writing and programming. I know. I, I love when you're in the middle of programming mode because I get a lot of texts and like videos of your laptop screen like showing off a text box or like something you're always like really proud of something. And it's really awesome to like see you succeeding and pulling off these cool little programming tricks. So like, I'm anxious for you to get back to programming mode. I have learned how to make animated GIFs, So it's no longer videos off my phone. Well, I mean, it's still easier to text a video off the phone. Oh, sometimes it is. I like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's awesome being able to post, uh, gifs and i love that we say that differently um it's going to annoy the hell out of everyone you say it incorrectly and that's all there is to it like yeah you can't right. correct what's broken you're just going to keep going well we already talked about lizard um but i love that we can oh <laughs> no i'm just kidding i love that we can post these to twitter to like show off in animated form what we're working on it's really cool did you see all the ones i posted on twitter quick run out to twitter and check I mean, me physically, and like, am I physically running? I'm so confused. No, because I don't ever post anything to social media. You did. It's been a while. Not for programming. No? No, I'm always afraid. Like, once I show something, then there's like the expectation like that'll be done next week, right? And it's like, no, no, this is like, this is a long-term project. And so (laughs) I'm finally excited to kind of start on... Uh, what I would call like my dream projects. Spookatron was kind of the training wheels, and now it's time to make the game I've always wanted to make, or at least one of them. So you're going from riding a bike with training wheels to zooming down a steep hill without training wheels. Oh, yeah, we're just going balls first. Balls first? Like, how does that... Is that not an expression? That's not important. Okay. Oh, and my first step in this sort of process has been to develop this template where, like, I can quickly create new projects, 
but I've also started to modularize. I don't know if that's a real word or not, um, but turn a lot of my old engines into these modular pieces that I can actually plug together and build stuff out of them. So like, I don't have to redo text boxes every single time I go to start a new project or even more complex things like my achievements screen, whatnot, like they're all these little things that I can just comment in or out. And then like it builds these programs out of it, which a lot of people uh, have said, like you can't really reuse stuff on the NES. And so it's been kind of a small personal victory to go. Yeah, I can. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've done it to a smaller extent um, with some of my stuff, but seeing how you've done it has been very impressive. You've you've taken it to sort of another level that I didn't know could be taken to. I didn't either. It just kind of occurred to me one day and I was like, hey, I wonder if we could do that. And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still kind of finishing Spookatron stuff uh, production-wise, but then I am really excited to start to be able to talk about a new project, finally, after all these years. Ooh. What will it be? Eh, we'll see. Ooh, is it that th- is it that thing that you would never tell me what the abbreviation stood for? SLR? Yes. No. no. What does that stand for? I will never tell you. <sighs> Man, this is like the ending to Twin Peaks. I just I will go on forever wondering what the hell it means. Mm, yes. What have you been up to? Well, Bo, if you follow me on Twitter, you would know what I've been up to because I, unlike you, post what's going on in my programming life. I think I saw some like old things from CNN maybe. Oh, that's what I'm that's what I'm striving for, man. So I'm working on porting the board game Risk to the NES and uh as you just briefly alluded to, I'm I'm trying to sort of make it look like uh, an old news broadcast of some sort, with a with a ticker going across the screen, sort of detailing what's going on in the game. It's gonna be cool, and I've been making really good progress. It's been fun learning new things um, about the system because you you know you work on games for a while and you're sort of doing the same things and and using the same tricks, but you never need to know how individual pixels are you know written in the graphics files like when you're manipulating them in real time you have to figure that stuff out so it's been fun learning more about the system that i've been coding to for damn near a decade now um so it's been it's been a lot of fun doing that uh it's coming together really fast in addition to that i still have graphics coming in for my larry sequel um, haven't started coding it yet, but uh, seeing the graphics, seeing them all together, it's it's very inspiring. So I'm I'm anxious to get to work on that because the story that I wrote for the Larry sequel, it's uh, it's special to me, and I think that it's uh, I don't know. I think I have something to say. You know, when you think of Leisure Suit Larry, you you maybe don't give a lot of credence to um, it having any heart. But uh, Larry, Larry is a lovable guy, and uh, we're going to sort of explore some of uh, what I consider in my Leisure Suit Larry, you know, imaginary world. We're going to explore some of his motivations, so it's going to be fun. Motivations. Hmm. Yeah. Curious. Is he a serial killer? He's not a serial killer, at least not in my version. All right. Well, that's good. I'll play this game. (laughs) I don't want that to be ruined. 
Yeah, but other than that, I've been playing a lot of uh, playing a lot of games, man. Like I haven't played a lot of NES in my adult life. You know, I, when I get together it's with research, it it is for you. You 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 know you use for that as a great us. excuse when you all sit around and play RPGs all day long, and you say, "Hey, wife, I'm doing this for research." <laughs> and maybe she buys it, maybe she doesn't. But yeah, I've been playing a lot of NES. It's been a lot of fun. I'm trying to like focus on a lot of the homebrews and unreleased stuff that didn't come out in the states so it's been fun sort of exploring um the games that i haven't been super familiar with oh man research is the reason the only reason i play platformers but that's all. the reason for the season mm-hmm. so what else has been going on in the community oh man it seems like something new every day now like th- there's so many people it seems like the community has grown to such a level that like everyone's working on such cool stuff that like every day like something new is like blowing people's minds. But I know Glutok from Broke Studios, he's been working on like a Wi-Fi adapter for the NES. It seems really interesting. I wish I understood more French. I know, it's it's like a fabled unicorn, you know. <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> yeah, so Antoine is I you know, he did Twin Dragons and all that, along with some other folks, of course. But uh, he it looks like he might end up being the first that kind of gets this going at uh, more than just an individual effort, uh, something that the community can really benefit from. And we can start to build games that we can play across the Internet yet on the NES. I'm very excited. Yeah, it feels like the 60s when like everyone's like rushing to build a rocket that can fly to the moon. Like everyone's trying to like come up with this way to get the NES working on the internet. I know that me and my people, I'll put that in quotation marks, um we've been trying for so long and just haven't sort of hit that that breakthrough moment yet. So we're all cheering for each other to sort of cross that threshold and make it happen. It just takes one. I mean, Rachel did it several years ago with that Twitter, the connected NES with the Twitter thing and all that. Yeah. But it wasn't something that, you know, the rest of us has been able to just pick up and like turn into games. So mm-hmm. I think the Antoine's new effort is and your guys's effort, if, if you beat him to the punch, is kind of something that we can use to make games that we can play like that to me is exciting. That's a world I want to live in where we can play NES games online and, you know, the jury's still out on whether you can play, like, in-depth, like, simultaneous online games together. Um, and I think someone did a test recently where, you know, for the longest time we've said that it wasn't possible. But um, maybe we were wrong. So this is, it's a, a good time to be alive. Well, that's what it took. You know, the community saying, hey, this is what we've done. We can now play games online. And somebody else saying well, here's how to play them in real time online. And it was like, whoa, okay. Like none of us thought that was even doable. And now yeah. here it is. Yeah. Let's all explore this. You know, we get a bunch of minds in the same room. Who knows what we can come up with, but somebody's <laughs> got to make that first step to kind of get it done. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I think Rob from Slydog Studios, isn't he working on like a, like a foreign language type puzzle game? Rob has like eight games probably done by the time we air this. <laughs> Man's a machine. He is. Yeah, Babel Blocks. Uh, it's kind of an interesting take on language and uh, some Tower Babel, you know, all that. Where, you know, you it's it's kind of edutainment, which we haven't seen a lot of like homebrew edutainment, yet uh-huh. it's also kind of a puzzle game. 
in terms of, you know, deciphering six different languages that you probably only know one of, or hopefully more than one, but probably just one. Now, I feel like you might need to educate some people on what edutainment means. Edutainment? Like, um, sp- no, not Space Shuttle Project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> things like Math Blaster, you know, you were, it was a game in quotes, but really you were solving math problems, or I don't want to say the Oregon Trail was edutainment because it was just so fun. It's a game designed to teach you something, right? Yeah, yeah, and usually it's more... It generally doesn't apply to the fun ones, um, things like Oregon <laughs> Trail or uh, Warren Robin have after adventure. He had some sort of robot building, like you build circuits more or less and get robots to work. The, the, see, to me, that sounds interesting. It's way more interesting than like typing tutor where you're just, you know, yeah, typing words and learning. Isn't there a Mario? Isn't there a Mario typing game? There is. I bought that thing at Goodwill. My (laughs) wife still credits the reason she can type to typing tutors. So I guess there was something in there. There you go for people. But edutainment. Rob's game is a little more thoughtful than you know the sort of the rote edutainment because you know he's not teaching you. You're either guessing or you know or you can maybe start to decipher how language is constructed and all that. So it's it's interesting. Oh, let's see what else we got. Uh, Tower Defense 1990, uh, I'd say finally shipped, but it's like Eskimo Bob. It's like, ah, it was four months really finally, like, Tower <laughs> Defense 1990 is now out. It was done by a fellow named Ryan. I forget what his actual, like, handle is online, uh, but Zai did the music. Yeah, he did. It, it's a Tower Defense game, which, you know, was not a genre that was really happening back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so it's a fun chance to sort of see how to interpret that genre back into the constraints of the NES with its, you know, so many sprites per scan line, music, uh, real-time stuff, all of that. I think that's one of my favorite parts of being part of this sort of, I feel dirty using the word, but aftermarket sort of, time frame for the nes like seeing genres that sort of came into limelight after the nes's lifespan be brought back and reimagined to work on the system it it's really interesting to me it, I, i'd even use the word fascinating Ooh, fascinating yeah uh speaking of throwbacks there has also been renewed interest in porting Mega Man 9 to the nes oh that's cool is someone really doing that no, it was met with the usual, you can't do this and here's why. <laughs> Sadly, I mean, I would love, we would all love to see it happen, but uh, when, you know, the greatest minds on Nest Dev kind of are like, well, here's why it can't work. It's like, yeah, okay, I can see why it can't work then. Uh, <laughs> I'll just trust in your judgment. <laughs> but one of these days, somebody is going to find some way to do something comparable, that something that it may not be a one-to-one port, but it'll be enough that we're like, yes, this is Mega Man 9 on the NES. We'll take it. I mean, because they didn't even like obey the attribute table, not the attribute tables, but they didn't even like obey like the tile constraints to the best of my knowledge. And so yeah. like it's, I've tried like demaking some things that, that are not 16 by 16, you know, pixels in terms of size for the blocks. And it's like, this is really difficult. Like you have to make a lot of choices about, what you're going to cut and what you're going to not. But it's it's kind of nice to still see interest in that uh, endeavor. And one of these days, somebody somebody will get around to something. <laughs> um, Nim and Nam 
has been released as a ROM, which it's a little puzzle game. You're this little tiny, like some sort of creature and you eat other creatures and like you have to eat them all on each screen. Like you just gobble them up. You have this like giant mouth. It's very well animated. And it's just a fun charm. It's a one of those charming little puzzlers. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of strategy or any. Well, it kind of does towards the later ones. But it's not like like Grunio Zerka 2 had a lot of like, you know, you got to make all the right moves. But this is more like time based where you can just run and jump and try to eat everything as fast as possible. But then it gets trickier as you go along. But one of the most fascinating things about it has been, or in my mind, at least, are the weather effects. Like, have you checked this one out yet, Kevin? No, I thought that I have, but hearing you describe it, it just doesn't sound familiar at all. Well, the weather effects aren't in the first world. You got to get to like the second set of stages and the third set. And like weather is very hard to do on the NES because there are no layers. And so you got to usually do it with sprites or like Rob did in the Mad Wizard. You got to sort of fake rain in the background by just having an all black background. But uh, the fellow who did Nim and Nam, like... You have rain, you have snow, and it looks awesome. This is like a teaching tool for, well, it's a teaching tool for me anyways. Like, <laughs> I, I find homebrews that are like, they're doing things that licensed games never did. This is the one to learn from. This is what I'm going to study is what, you know, the people that I could talk to right now if I wanted to are doing. Like, it's just a very different world than the licensed era. Well, I'm going to have to go check it out now. I mean, you've you've hyped me, so I imagine people listening are hyped also. Yeah, and it's free download. Um, and, you know, Brad did in Lizard, which we talked about last episode, he did some, like, cool snow and stuff like that. And that was very creative. Uh, but Nim and Nam, like, takes it even further. And I really just got to analyze it more. Like, I don't know how he did it. It looks so good. Cool. Or she. Or she. I'm not quite sure if it was a he <laughs> or she. Uh, there's been another few. Well several releases by one person uh vegetablets go and 11 which looks like ill evan 11 i can't say some of these things but this one's in japanese so like i kind of have a pass on that one yeah <laughs> and they've been limited releases they've been going for like three or four months now where he'll release like 10 copies on a sunday morning at like 10 o'clock in the u.s and they sell out within the first one sold out within like 30 seconds. And I was like, well, okay, maybe next time. And he, he keeps, or they keep putting out more. And so that's been nice. It wasn't one of these, you know, super limited, you know, hope you were listening things. And so they keep making more, but uh, Vegetablets Go and 11, they both uh, Famicom and NES versions, which is sort of interesting. And you ah. can see a lot of Japanese homebrewers, which is awesome. Like, I got the package in the mail and was just like, this is great. I can finally play this and like popped it in and checked it out and it, it wasn't too bad. And yeah, it was, it's just interesting. We don't get a lot uh, from Japan. Hopefully we get more. Do we have time for one more? Oh, yeah. I really wanted to talk about you sent me a message with a link um, and I, I knew nothing about this. It was like a blind link. And I'm glad that I Palamides? wasn't. Ex I'm, that's what I was about to say. I'm glad that I was not met with something uh, on the other end of my computer screen that I did not want to see after clicking this link so blindly. I'm going to send you blind links all the time now. <laughs> but there, um, and I don't think that it even has a title yet, but uh, someone by the username I am error on Nestev, they're creating this like real-time strategy game 
with like robots and scrolling. Like it seems it has like a, a heads up display. It's like really, really elaborate. We call them mechs where I come from. Oh. You know, like Warhammer or uh Mech Warrior. Yeah, Mech Warrior. That's thanks. Thanks. The, you know that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh but yeah, it's turn based, which you know, we have a lot of turn based games on the NES, especially on the Famicom, but this one is isometric and he went for like a kind of a reduced color palette, almost it's not quite Game Boy esque in terms of that. It's more like greens and blacks, but yeah. It allows you to get around a lot of the attribute restrictions and make a game that looks very visually pleasing, unlike things like Snake Rattle and Roll. Yeah, and it seems very big. You know, what a lot of NES games they sort of, you know, when the screen scrolls, it immediately like it you know, if if an enemy walks off screen, it immediately like forgets about that enemy. But like this game on on the I don't know game map for lack of a better word, it keeps track of like all the mechs and like their relation to you, and you have to like sort of attack them, and they they're coming after you. It it seems really involved. It, it feels it's starting to almost feel like XCOM as it comes together, uh, but not quite. That's still really impressive for an NES game. Uh, I hate when people say that. It's impressive for any game, Kevin. It's wonderful. Yes. (laughs) I always like, too, when people jump into the forums and they're like, hey, this is my first post. Here's like a great game that's going to push the limits of the system even further. And it's like, okay, (laughs) I I need to give up. (laughs) Well, there's some talented people out there and we're lucky to have them. We really are. It just makes for better and better games as we've seen the uh, last couple of episodes. Well, what else? There's always lots going on in the homebrew community, but one of the most exciting things is has been some of the Kickstarters over the years. They're, they're usually for larger projects. They bring a lot of excitement and just it's kind of newness to the community and a breath of fresh air. And we are going to talk with Chris uh, Cacciatore, who is doing Nebs and Debs, which uh, scored second place in uh, last year's, oh, two years ago's, nest dev competition and um yeah so chris is also famous for doing the spookatron art and thank you so much for that chris <laughs> so famous you're welcome yeah and he's you know done done various things around the community over the years but he can also program which to me like i had no clue you could actually do that when we started talking about art and such oh i take that as a compliment <laughs> you, you couldn't tell no, like your art was just so good. I was like, well, this is his thing. He must just do only this. And this is what he has dedicated his life to not full programming wonderfulness. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I'm programming's my day job. So uh, I try to avoid it uh, when I'm doing hobbies and stuff, but it was unavoidable. Actually, <laughs> worlds are opposite. colliding. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got this exciting new game called Nebs and Debs. Uh, tell us a bit about kind of the gameplay with it. So Nebs and Debs, it's an NROM 256 game. Uh, so it's running on the same type of cartridge, cartridge that the original Super Mario Brothers ran on. Um, it's a platformer. Uh, there's going to be 12 levels. It's supposed to be fast action. It's supposed to be something hopefully Bo likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an RPG, though. Yeah, uh, that, that's the hard part, yeah. <laughs> I think that was sarcasm, Kevin. <laughs> I see. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, hopefully I'm trying to get my first game done for the NES. That's that's the big goal. Complete a project, and then I can do other things too. 
Well, that's great, man. I mean, it's it's been going for, it looks like, almost a week at this point, and it's almost doubled your initial goal. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, we've almost doubled it. Uh, I was blown away by the response. Uh, I was getting emotional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So you scored uh, second. Um, two years ago, the Nestev competition had two amazing-looking platformers, Twin Dragons, which has since gone on to be kickstarted and released, and then Nebs and Debs, your game. Like you scored second, but they were both such solid entries. How has sort of the current project changed from what was entered back then? Well, there's a number of technical things I had to do. Like with the demo, um, a number of objects were. Or everything was a sprite, pretty much. The the crystals which you collect, all the enemies, of course. And that couldn't fly with the uh, the final version, the version that's being kickstarted right now. We I had to have like destroyable backgrounds. Um, that was probably the biggest change. But in in order to not have like ma- major flicker and to have like gameplay that people would assume for the NES, a number of big changes with the engine happen uh, had to happen. That was one of the the neatest things about the new version has been the the destructible backgrounds because you don't see that all that often at least on the scale that you've done. Well, thank you. It's hard. <laughs> Turns out that's what she said. Yeah. Oh, Kevin. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> I remember seeing you you sort of polled on the forums. Uh, questions about bosses and stuff did you and people had suggested this sort of shark boss i think or you would you'd posted some image and people people liked it is the shark boss returning uh unfortunately no you know it's it boss like boss fights like coding them it takes a lot of space to like have a, a satisfying boss fight i think and i don't have a lot of space so i don't know i don't think the bowser fights in super mario brothers was very satisfying personally so have you done something a little different with you with your game then? Yes. So all the boss stages in Nebs and Debs, it's kind of part auto scroller, part race, Ooh. part normal level, yeah. So there's there'll be a special drone called an LO2 drone, which has one of your ship parts. And so you need to race them, keep them on the screen, because if they reach the end of the screen, then you lose a life. So yeah, track them down. Can you talk about some of the different tiers that you're offering for your Kickstarter campaign? Uh, so we've got at the very bottom, we've got the, the ROM-only level. So if you don't have your NES or you don't have a lot of space, you can pick up the ROM for $10. Uh, then we also have the cartridge-only at the 35 level, and that's the gray uh, regular cartridge. Uh, then we also have the case and box at 45 and the deluxe at 55 and that uh, is like the case in box except you get a clear cartridge uh, and then also a uh, poster which is a kickstarter exclusive and then the the final tier is the uh, thank i think i call it the thank you reward level where it's all the above and then uh, or of the deluxe and then you'll be thanked in the manual what's most what's most exciting to me is you as well as your campaign's doing, you don't have any outrageous tiers. And I think that too many projects try to, I don't know if it's out of fear that they're not going to reach their goal with the lower, you know, the lower price, normal sort of price tiers, but it just seems like a lot of these projects just put these outrageous tiers in there and uh, I don't see the point in them. So I'm glad that you're not going that route. 
Oh, thanks. I think it was my engineer like kicking in then, my engineering instincts. I was like, I want to keep things simple. Only want a few tiers. Yeah. But I really need that $50 tote bag. <laughs> Do that, you? That's what makes my world go round. That's what I go get my organic groceries in and such. Um, I noticed that the estimated delivery on this project is December 2018, so the game must be pretty close to being completed. Yes. Uh, 11 of the 12 levels are... I wouldn't say done, but they're in playtesting right now, so they'll probably be tweaked and iterated upon a little bit. But I made sure to wait until until I was pretty reasonable that I could deliver in a short period of time. Uh, the original Nebs and Debs version, you kind of did all yourself, correct? And then this version has a lot more people like part of the project, right? It does. For the Nestev Compo, it was me doing the art and the programming. And then I did, uh, Cooler was cool enough to do uh, music and sound effects for the demo version. So it was us two for that. Uh, but now uh, we've added some more awesome people. We've got Anders, who's, who's doing the pixel art now. And then uh, Kayla doing the illustrations, which you see on the, the box cover and in the manual. And then uh, Heather, who's doing all the uh, graphic, the layout for the manual and the box, all that stuff. It's just crazy to me that as talented as you are with art, you have somebody else doing your art. <laughs> it's just nuts. Explain. I, I have to know. Uh, so yeah, after we placed second, I realized, I soon realized I like for all the things I wanted to do, I didn't have time. And I figured it'd be easier to find an artist than it would be to find a programmer to work to program the 6502. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Interesting. And has how's that process been like being on the other side of the table? It's it's been fun. It it's really neat working like I I really lucked out with all these people. They're just like their connections I made on Twitter or it was a cold email. I said, "Hey, do you want to be involved with this project? I'm some weird guy making an NES game." <laughs> uh, and, and they said, "Yes." I just I give them these loose specifications like this is kind of what I'm looking for and then they come back and then every time I'm blown away <laughs> it's nuts. So, yeah, with Anders it's just like he thinks of things or he he has sent me assets where I I wasn't expecting it or I wasn't looking for that but then it's perfect. What is this I see about the soundtrack being written for Super Nintendo? Can can you elaborate on what's going on with that? Oh, yeah. So, for the stretch goal, uh we're going to be doing uh, Kulor. I think I don't know if it's his specialty. I'll call it his specialty, where he does what's called an enhanced soundtrack. So he'll he'll take the original soundtrack for the NES, and then he'll pick uh, one or more tracks, and then rearrange it and, and have it played on more sophisticated hardware like the SNES. Okay. I can't even imagine how that would work, but he seems to be very talented at what he does. So I won't ask too many questions. <laughs> Well, shoot, this is all very exciting. Uh, I'm very glad to see that Nebs and Debs has already done well and is, you know, on its way to do a lot more. It's It's been a neat project to kind of watch. You know, you never know with the, with the Nest Dev stuff, people finish projects and, and where are they going to go from there? And, you've, you know, you've taken your time and you've polished it up. And yeah, very excited. Yeah, I think my favorite part has been seeing the progress, you know, because you always post the the GIFs on Twitter, so it's been fun seeing the progression of the game, you know, over the over the various months as you've added to it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, so if um, 
If you're curious what Chris has been up to, you can be found at... Uh, you can go to nebsanddebs.com, and that'll, that has a link to the Kickstarter, uh, and then also has a link to the tw- my Twitter profile. Uh, my Twitter profile is kind of unpronounceable. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, yeah, check out Nebs and Debs. It's uh, on Kickstarter right now, and yeah, action platformer, jumper, NROM, 256, you'll have lots of fun. Well, as always, we appreciate you guys listening. Um, if you like what you hear, you can always rate us on iTunes. I think we're right now we're sporting a pretty solid five-star review, so if you want to add to that, we would love you to. Uh, if you have any questions, you can always email us at nesassemblyline at gmail.com. We will answer all questions sent to us on a future episode. If you want to support us, uh, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash nesassemblyline. If you would like to follow us on Twitter to keep up with what we're working on, and uh, we're also pretty good at sharing what else is going on in the NES community, but you can find me at A Ton of Glaciers, and you can find Bo at Soul Goose. And we are going to close with some music from Nebs and Debs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>